Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives, jobs, debts, incomes, our own, and those of our kids. I'm your host, Richard Wolff. I want to begin today with what I call a critique of obscene wealth. Many of you have asked me to talk about this, really, for quite a while now. And while I touch on it, I wanted to spend a little concentrated time explaining why I think the word obscene is appropriate for the way that we treat wealth in this society. There's an obscene desire not to face the problems that it offers us. I'm going to use two examples. I don't mean to pick them out. On the other hand, they do deserve it. One is Elon Musk, and the other one is Jeff Bezos, who are in neck-and-neck combat uh, to see who is the richest and who can spend their money in the most amusing ways, as we recently saw when they competed around rocket ship rides the way children might around an amusement park. So let's talk about what it means to be a billionaire. I'm going to pick billionaires. There's not even a thousand of them here in the United States. And we are a population of 330 million people. So it's point oh 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 oh, and there's too many for me to count them, a percent of our population. I want to begin by making some points. First, obscene wealth is unfair. Why? Because lots of other people contributed to what these billionaires tell us they did. Let me give you an example. Elon Musk tells us that he invented the electric car or something to that effect. He didn't. Let's be clear. To make an electric car, indeed to invent almost anything, you have to rely on an enormous amount of work that went before you. In this case, you need to deal with all the things that have been figured about, out about automobiles, everything that's been figured out about electricity, everything that's been figured out about batteries, and I could go on. All of the people along the way who improved those things, and they number numberless numbers of people across the world, played a role in what Elon Musk did. You know, he's really only the last step in a long chain. There's no point in giving him a disproportionate reward when you haven't done that and you aren't about to, to all the others in that long chain. Let me give you an example, a metaphor, if you like, for how this works. Suppose a village that's threatened by a river overflowing its banks so a flood will come. And a portion of the adults in the village quickly see the problem, get together. Some of them go and get bags. Others of them go and get sand. Still others fill the bags with the sand. And then they hand it one to the other till they get to the last person closest to the river who piles the sandbags up there. And they do it. The flood is avoided. And a grateful village decides to raise some money. And they do, $10,000, which they're going to give in gratitude to the people who helped. And they give the check for $10,000 to whom? The guy at the end of the line who stacked the sandbags by the river. Everybody else gets nothing. You know what that is? 
That's a disincentive for people to do the right thing, isn't it? It's a crazy thing to do. It's not appropriate. It isn't fair. Why are we doing that? There's a second problem with obscene wealth. It's unnecessary. It's simply not true. There is no evidence to suggest that the breakthroughs, the inventions, the innovations that we need as a people only come or come more or come more often if we give loads of money to the people. I could give you lots of evidence. I'm just going to give you some examples. Jonas Salk with the polio vaccine. B.B. King with extraordinary blues music. Beethoven with extraordinary classic music. Albert Einstein understanding the planetary systems and relativity. None of them became billionaires. None of them expected to become billionaires. None of them ever expressed regret that they weren't rewarded with billions. In my profession, economics, the highest prize any economic student or teacher can think about is called the Nobel Prize. You may know about it. It's about a million dollars if you do something really extraordinary, at least in the minds of the committee in Sweden, that gives out the reward. But no one in economics wants, demands, expects, needs, requires, or justifies making a billionaire. You don't need it. All of those breakthroughs made by all those people I mentioned they were made without an expectation and without any billions being cashed in on by any of those people. It is an invention. It isn't something useful that makes a person a billionaire. Quite the opposite. It's capitalism as a system, and particularly the ability capitalism gives some people to cash in on the way this system works to become a billionaire, not to invent anything. Let me give you again some examples. We all know stores, you know, the hardware store and the grocery store and the drug store and the produce store and so on. And we once lived in a society where there were lots of stores and each of them sold us something. And along came some people, oh, I don't know, let's call them, I don't know, Sears and Roebuck. And they said, you know, let's get it all together in one store. And people only have to go to one place. And they, now that's not a mental breakthrough, folks. That's not the equivalent of a new music or a new artistic style or a new way of understanding the, the world or a new source of power for powering. A, no, no, no. It's a little thing, isn't it? But Sears and Roebuck became multimillionaires by doing that. And, you know, somebody else figured out you know something? Better than Sears and Roebuck with just the stuff they have, we're going to have a department store that has everything, what Sears had and lots of other things. With the Walton family, we're going to set up these huge stores that have everything in there, and we're going to be able to buy everything in big quantity, lower the price. That's not a breakthrough, folks. That's exactly what Sears Roebuck did, only one step larger. The Walton family is the richest family on earth. Not because they invented something that was a breakthrough, but because they could be the first on the block and capitalism gives the first one a ridiculous reward so long as they can be the only ones doing it. Walton and the Walmart people are now in trouble because of the next step. Amazon, Jeff Bezos, everything, not only in one place, but no place at all. We'll bring it to you. 
again. You want to call that a breakthrough? That's on a par with a major medical discovery or astronomy discovery or a new way of solving our economic problems the way Mr. Keynes tried to do for capitalism? No, it's a little thing. You don't get to be a billionaire because you did something great for human society. You get there because you can play the game of capitalism and grab a lot of the money before the next one comes along and does to you what you did to everybody else. And the last thing that's wrong with obscene wealth is it's fundamentally undemocratic. And you and I both know that. The richer you are, the more of your money you are going to have to spend to, be, to continue to be the richest one around. Because everybody else will be gunning for you and the money that you're grabbing into yourself. So the first thing rich people do is corrupt democracy, buy off the, the senators, the Congress people, the political parties, army of lobbyists paid by these rich people to make sure they stay that way. I'm going to give you just one example. Once upon a time, before we had this kind of obscene wealth, people had the idea we all should start on a level playing field. Every child born should have a roughly equal chance to develop their skills, to develop their abilities, and to do well in life. And it's unfair if some have enormous wealth when they're born and others don't. And so we had what was a serious estate tax system. When you die, your money kind of goes back into the general pot, most of it, so that your child isn't that much more ahead than the child of someone who isn't rich. So for example, from 1940s to the 1970s, the estate tax in the United States, as I have reported to you in the past, was this. Everything over $60,000, first $60,000 you could leave to your children or your descendants. But anything above 60000 the government taxed 77% in this country, the federal government, 77%. Today, after rich people have done their work, it's everything after the first, ready? $23.4 million. The first $23.4 million, you don't pay any federal estate tax. And every dollar after that, not 77% as we once did, 40%. Wow. That's rich people making sure we don't get back the wealth they've accumulated in their life. We don't have a level playing field. We don't give all our kids an equal chance. And we deprive the government of many billions of dollars, which means what? Either the government doesn't provide the services we need because it isn't getting those billions from the big estates, or we have to pay more taxes because they're paying less. Either way, we're screwed. And that's how this system works. There's a reason why people who have advocated for democracy usually put the word equality in there. When Mr. Bezos decides he wants something, he can make millions of people go to work producing it because he has that money. We can't. You and I can't. We may need some that doesn't get produced because we don't have the money. So the very jobs we have, the work we do, the, the things we produce are shaped by these billionaires in a wildly disproportionate way, given that it's unjust to start with, it's unnecessary as well. Obscene wealth deserves the name obscene. My next update 
is tragic. It's about rape, the crime of rape. The average in the last few years in the United States has been 460,000 people are victims of rape or attempted rape every year. That's what's reported. Many of them go unreported. That's a higher rate of that horrid crime than the people we've lost to COVID in the last two years. But is it a crisis understood that way? Is everybody working on it? No. And that's why I'm talking about it. You know when rapes happen most between to victims who are between 12 and 34 years of age, young people, and they suffer the rest of their lives. They get depressed more often. They need more medication. They need more therapy. Their lives are a mess in many cases. It's a horrible burden and cost on their system on top of being a horrible violation of decent human rights. In the United Kingdom, it spawned new program. Everyone's invited, as women particularly, since they are the major victims of rape, 10 times more than men are. It's a crisis. It deserves the attention of a crisis. And imagine if we taxed the obscene wealthy and we used it to deal with this crisis. What a contribution we could make. We've come to the end of the first part of today's economic update. And as always, I want to thank all of you whose support makes this show possible each week. To learn more about the different ways you can support Economic Update, please go to patreon.com slash economic update or visit democracyatwork.info. We've also recently released a new hardcover edition of Understanding Marxism that is available now. To get your copy of this new edition or other books, go to democracyatwork.info slash books. Please stay with us. We'll be right back with today's special guest, investigative reporter Bob Henley. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. And it is with great pleasure that I welcome back my favorite investigative reporter, Mr. Robert Henley, but I'm going to call him Bob, as I always do. And though you know him, I'm going to remind you, he's an award-winning print and broadcast journalist, a staff reporter for the Chief Leader, a New York City-based labor-focused newspaper since 1897. On the Chief Leader, Bob has been covering U.S. labor issues nationally for several years. He's also a regular contributor to Salon Magazine, where he writes about economics and politics. Over the years, he has done reporting for the following, quite a resume. CBS's 60 Minutes, The New York Times, The Village Voice, The Christian Science Monitor, CBS Money Watch, National Public Radio, WNYC, and the Pacifica Network. He's been dedicated more recently to covering the pandemic through the perspective of healthcare workers, first responders, and the entire so-called essential workforce. And he's the author of his new book, just released and published by Democracy at Work, called Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People? So, Bob, welcome again to our microphones and our cameras. 
Thanks for inviting me. All right, let's jump right in. We're at the second, we're coming to the end of the second year of a global uh, viral pandemic. And we know that here in the United States, we have lost tens of thousands of workers who are part of the essential workforce in the sectors like healthcare, transport, emergencies, and so on. And yet, ironically, unions and workers in those industries have in significant numbers been pushing against the vaccine that has been going around. Or, and this is the key point, they've been pushing back against mandates to get vaccines. And so in the public mind, with the assistance of mainstream media, there's a bit of a collapse or a confusion between being anti-vaccine, which is one issue, and being anti-mandate, which is another. Can you give us a little background and to understand how this happened and what's at stake? First and foremost, it's important to keep in mind that this the highest crime and misdemeanor of former President Trump was to pit each state of the United States against each other, which was unprecedented. It's very uh, important to understand that at a time of a once-in-a-century public health crisis, he did something very cynical, which is still haunting President Biden today, which was to pit red states versus blue states to the point that a Republican governor, Hogan from Maryland, had to assign armed state troopers to protect the PPE, protect your protection equipment for the workers that he was trying to distribute in Maryland. So that said, what's happened here is that we've seen the conversation shift from the failure of the government to protect and anticipate this, which was something that was widely known and discussed. Indeed, the Obama administration had plans that were on the shelf that could have been utilized to this question of whether or not workers are going to submit to vaccination. It's important to know that in under labor law, something like this, that's a term and condition of employment, is to be negotiated. I will tell you that labor leaders like Sarah Nelson, who I just interviewed from the Flight Attendants Union with the CWA, describes a different model than we're seeing in some jurisdictions like New York City, where it was mandated under coercion by Mayor de Blasio. In that setting, uh, airlines like United worked with the union to develop a plan the union had a role in formulating. In those places, without coercion, they got well over 90% participation. So I would say this is just smokescreen by a certain kind of opportunist po- political people like Mr. de Blasio, who wants to run for governor, who are trying to strike a kind of petco thing, where they appear to be more acting in the public interest than the unions themselves. So in fact, is it correct, as I have been told by several union leaders, that they are against mandates, but are very much for vaccination, have done so, have themselves been vaccinated, have encouraged their members to be vaccinated. In other words, it's really wrong to equate anti-mandate with anti-vaccine. Absolutely. And one of the things about this that capital probably loves is this does fracture the labor movement. It's very important to understand that I know of no union, none, uh, that has opposed the vaccine as a scientific matter. I do know of many unions who feel that we need to be skeptical about the state apparatus because let's remember the same pharma complex that now we see as being our saviors were defendants in cases and still are defenses in cases regarding the opioid epidemic that was documented, at least in civil trial, that they promoted. So I think the unions here once again see themselves as a backstop for future generations. Because the reality is, in a world of global warming, 
pandemics is going to be a further notice thing. Even as we speak uh, today, we're preparing for yet another wave. So it's very important that unions go to the mat to protect workers, to make sure that they hold the government accountable. I mean, let's remember that uh, the nurses here were saying uh, uh, at the very beginning of the pandemic, and this is not remembered, but it's it's cost many people their lives. By some estimates, 4,000 nurses in the United States and healthcare workers have died from this pandemic because of things like what the CDC did originally, where at the beginning of this, because there was not sufficient supply of N95 masks, told these health professionals to not do the things they learn a basic basics in medical school and nursing school, which is to remove an N95 mask after each clinical encounter. That's very important to understand. That is every time you see a patient that might be infected. What the CDC did to manage inventory during the Trump administration was tell people to forget their training and to wear their mask sometimes for a week at a time. And at the time, the unions in this country predicted that two things would happen, that they would spread the disease and that they themselves would die. And the third thing, the hospitals, which were the, the, uh, the front lines, would become vectors for the disease. And I submit to you, Rick, that because we did not heed the labor unions, that's what exactly happened. Scroll forward to May of just this year, where the CDC said, let's roll back uh, the universal mask mandate for people that are vaccinated in interior settings. And at the time, you didn't see this reported, but it happened. The unions warned this will spread the disease. There is not sufficient enough uh, vaccination. Moreover, you're putting us in a position of being the vaccination police. And what's going to happen is you're going to spawn a variant. And that's exactly what happened because workers and their unions were not at the table. It's also important to remind everyone that we have 150 years of struggle in this country to, uh, to get unions and to get workers a seat at the table, to work out how to deal with work problems, whether they are local in the factory or the office or they're national like this crisis. And there's no reason to ask unions to simply step aside and give away what they fought so hard to achieve. And there's something sleazy about employers using a pandemic to, to kind of sneak in the ability to mandate something they should have negotiated. And I think it's very important that your work puts that forward. Um, I want to switch now and I want to draw your, your brain to focus a little bit on a political problem. There were recent elections uh, in November of this year in Virginia and New Jersey, particularly, and I know you are a longtime New Jersey reporter as well as resident. And the argument was made that the Democratic Party was lost a lot of ground or appeared to in those two states as well as elsewhere. And the argument was made very quickly by the establishment Democratic Party, the centrists, that this was because of some association of voters with the progressive wing of the party, Bernie, Ocasio-Cortez, and all of that. And I think you've taken the position in your writing exactly the opposite. And I'd like you to expand on how you see the election results and what sense you make of them. So I would say that watching very closely what was happening in New Jersey with Governor Phil Murphy, who was uh, going up against what had been a, basically a jinx because we'd not elected a, uh, a re-elected a Democrat going back to Brendan Byrne to like the 1980s. 
And he originally had like a double digit lead. Now, my reporting indicated that his decision to go to his villa in Italy in August, in the middle of a wave, when the State Department advised against U.S. traveling there, U.S. people traveling there, was when Republican former Assemblyman Jack Cittarelli closed that gap. Because he is a journeyman politician, Republican, tried to distance himself from Trump, and he just was laying out what was the hypocrisy. And so as a result, the combination of Murphy did not galvanize the urban base, so we did not have the typical turnout that we had in 2020 that gave Biden historic margins here in New Jersey. And so it was very much like what happened in 2016. People forget this. This is how the Democrats lost. There was a demobilization of 700,000 African-American households. It did 700,000 American uh, African-Americans. And part of that was because Obama had not addressed the foreclosure crisis on Martin Luther King Boulevard and a surge in the reactionary white supremacist vote that Trump uh, managed to galvanize. So it's the combination of those things. So I will tell you that actually the failure to uh, excite what uh, Dr. Reverend Barber calls the, the sleeping giant of the tens of millions of working class Americans was the reason why it was so close. And actually what you see here is the same thing. They're on a glide path for failure in 2022 because the Democrats, the establishment, they have President Biden in the middle of this inflationary run-up going to Nantucket to spend time in the estate of the uh, co-founder of Carlisle. Like, and then disconnected from the struggle Americans are having with things like gasoline prices and the price of Turkey. Similarly, President Obama accepts $100 million for his foundation from Jeff Bezos. These people don't blink about this. This is an incoherent message. If you're saying that you represent something different, that you want to ta- uh, flip the unfair and oppressive tax pyramid of America that has destroyed working class families' ambitions for generations, then you have to stand up to this kind of dynastic wealth, not cater to it, which is what we've seen with the way they hollowed out Build Back Better, which must be passed, Rick. I, I don't say it shouldn't. But remember, it started at some three point some odd trillion, and it was cut only when the mansions and the cinemas got weak need about imposing a dynastic wealth tax, which is what originally the more progressive elements of the Biden White House wanted to do. You know, it leaves me with the impression, your reporting and now what you have just said to us, that the Democratic Party's refusal to to cash in, if I can put it that way, on the mass feeling in this country that big business and the billionaires are running away with the entire game here and have been doing it for for 30, 40 years, the refusal of the Democratic Party to make that the central message, means they have given up on any chance to have the political power not to be in the corner of giving up everything the way you just described, caving in on the Build Back Better tax part. But and uh, the reality here is that also it's bad economic policy. One of the problems that all economists recognize is that there's a labor force problem going on. There's many reasons for it. We're having people spontaneously reassess their life because of an existential crisis where tens of thousands of people they knew died really from working at the grocery store, driving a truck, or interacting in the world. And so if you wanted to have people encourage them to come back to the workforce, you should make work pay. But what this country has done, and my father, I think, 
felt this his whole life trying to raise six kids, was that you never got ahead because they tax work at a higher rate of taxation than idle capital. That is the central mortal sin of this country. And if it's not reversed, it'll never achieve its potential. It will always be about the accumulation of capital to the disadvantage of working families. And that, Bob Henley, is why you are my favorite reporter and are on this program. Thank you very much, Bob, for your insights, for the reporting you do, and the analysis that you pull out of your reporting. One is as important and valuable as the other. And to my audience, I hope you will agree with me. It's a special time when we hear from Bob, get a a depth kind of reporting beyond the norm. Thank you for listening, and I look forward, as always, to speaking with you again next week.